Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 4. I want to read you an Edna St. Vincent Millay poem. Again, she studies this with great detail. Only she's not as... She, I think, has insight into it in exactly the same way Dante does. But she is not able to to be as to, to surrender consciousness as easily as Paolo and Francesca. She says, Paolo and Francesca were reading a book. Well, Malay even makes it more hilarious. They're doing their taxes. <laughs> so get this first line. We talk of taxes, and I call you friend. Well, such you are. But well enough we know how thick about us root, how rankly grow those subtle weeds no man has need to tend that flourish through neglect and soon must send perfume too sweet upon us and overthrow our steady senses. How such matters go, we are aware, and how such matters end. Notice, she knows it's through neglect. She knows, she uses both the Shakespearean phrasing and the Dante phrasing. She says, well enough we know. All this the world well knows, but none knows well. Well enough, we know, she said. And then she says, it flourishes through neglect, and then she says, it will come upon us and overthrow our senses. That's what Francesca said. We were overthrown by it. How such matters go, we are aware. And how such matters end. We know the end of the story. The round table was destroyed. We've read to the end of the book. Yet shall be told no meager passion here, with lovers such as we forevermore. Isolde drinks the draft, and Guinevere receives the table's ruin through her door. Francesca, with the loud surf at her ear, lets fall the colored book upon the floor. Yet we shall be told, excuse me, yet shall be told no meager passion here like that it's a meager passion it's not the surplus of passion it is the lack of passion so it is a kind of dreamy romance a reversion from a la- from a a more mature stage of love to a less mature stage of love and it's an avoidance of consciousness and of an avoidance of relationship. And the way the, the romantic love strategy for avoiding consciousness and relationship is to avoid dailiness, to, to avoid everydayness. You see, romantic love was based on some obstacle that prevented dailiness. The most interesting one was would be a marriage to someone else because it was an obstacle that was not physical. 
It's nice to have one that's just sociological, uh, because then you still have physical access. Uh, but the sociological barrier, namely the fact that the, your relationship is an adulterous one, uh, allows for a little trysting on the side, but it prevents everydayness from intruding into that delusion so that real relationship might happen. So it prevents that. It's a violation of the relational impulse. So Antonio Machado has a poem, pardon the chauvinism of this poem. Machado is a Latin American poet. In the sea called woman, few men shipwreck at night, many at sunrise. Now, that is, I think, a reference to the morning after. This experience called the morning after. Now, I, know, I knew that you would want to have a... Because the whole question here in this thing is what's the difference between love and lust? Uh, and I knew you would want a definition, so I worked one up for you. <laughs> but, uh, unfortunately, it, it, it's a... It's a, a criteria that you can only apply after the fact, and so it does you no good. <laughs> well, maybe it will. Uh, it goes like this. Love looks forward to breakfast, and lust looks around for his hat. Now, the night before, they are indistinguishable. They're very close to being indistinguishable the night before. The morning after, love looks forward to breakfast, and lust looks around for his hat. So Donald Justice has a poem about the punishment that Paolo and Francesca are receiving. It always comes, and when it comes, they know. To will it is enough to bring them there. The knack is this, to fasten and not let go. Their limbs are charmed. They cannot stay or go. Desire is limbo. They're unhappy there. It always comes, and when it comes, they know. Their choice of hells would be the one they know. That's a great line. Boy, that says something about us human beings. Their choice of hells would be the one they know. Dante describes it, the wind circling there. The knack is this, to fasten and not let go. The wind carries them where they wanted to go, yet it seems cruel to strangers passing there. It always comes, and when it comes they know. The knack is this, to fasten and not let go. Paolo and Francesca surrendered consciousness and violated the relational impulse and fell into one another's arms. And as I said, in Dante, one is punished by the sin, not for the sin. Their eternal punishment is the morning after eternalized. The morning after eternalized, in which they are in one another's embrace, and they are not embracing their fantasies about one another. They are embracing one another. And if 
they were in love, it would be heaven. And since they are not, it's hell. The morning after, eternalized. So I had to read a poem, Richard Wilbur poem. Dante says, How deep a longing had led them to this agonizing past. Doloroso paso. This painful, sorrowful past. Wilbur has a poem about, in the middle of which, his two lovers pass through the past. Dante, Francesca and Paolo are stuck there for all eternity. But Richard Wilbur tells the story, what would happen had they not gotten stuck there, literally stuck there. Their, Francesca's husband came in and stuck them with a knife, and there they were, pinned and wiggling on the wall, as Elliot said. Here's Richard Wilbur's version. Meeting when all the world was in the bud, drawn each to each by instinct's wooden face. We had to stop there once in a while. Instinct's wooden face. It is, it is archetypal. It is instinct, this powerful instinct that brings people together. That is very much a part of it. If all goes well, it can lead to an actual relationship. But in the first instance, it is instinct's wooden face. It's a beautiful rendition of things. These lovers, let me start all over, meeting when all the world was in the bud, drawn each to each by instinct's wooden face, these lovers, heedful of the mystic blood, fell glassy-eyed into a hot embrace. Again, glassy-eyed and wooden face. There's the story. That's the beginning. It's very important. Without it, the, the soul would not be stirred. You know, it's absolutely essential. But it is the beginning. April, unready to be so intense, marked time while these outstripped the gentle weather. There's a lot, a lot of irony in this poem. Outstripped the gentle... Yielded their natures to insensate sense and flew apart the more they came together and flew apart the more they came together. Where did they fly? Why, each through such a storm as may be conjured in a globe of glass. Drove on the colder as the flesh grew warm in breathless haste to be at lust's impasse. And that's where Paolo and Francesca spend all eternity, at lust's impasse. To cross the little bridge How's that for a symbol of the orgasm? To cross the little bridge and sink to rest in visions of the snow-occluded house where languishes, unfound by any quest, the perfect, small, asphyxiated spouse. <laughs> that blizzard ended and their eyes grew clear, and there they lay, exhausted yet unsated. Why did their features run with tear on tear until their looks were individuated? Notice. 
instincts wouldn't face, glassy-eyed, and now tears until they are individuated. See, this is the graduate course, this part down here. One piece implies another, and they cried for want of love as if their souls would crack, till in despair of being satisfied they vowed at least to share each other's lack. Then, maladroitly, they embraced once more. It's so it's a beautiful line. Maladroitly, they embraced once more, and this is when it becomes real. Maladroitly, they embraced once more, and hollow rang to hollow with a sound that tuned the brooks more sweetly than before and made the birds explode for miles around. Loves of the puppets. Loves of the puppets. It's a romantic version of uh, Pinocchio coming to life. In dealing with these issues, mythology has given us a supreme symbol, namely the love potion. The story of Tristan and Isolde, and so often in the in the uh, romantic mythology, it's it's when the two lovers drink the love potion. Uh, passionate love is a is an intoxicant. It's a drug. Uh, it's an important one. Without it, we'd be lost. But it is a drug, and it wears off. Uh, it wears off after three units of time. Most of the myths say after three units of time, three days, three years. Uh, but it wears off. And then what to do when it wears off? Now, if we switch from from uh, Roma, from the uh, medieval mythology uh, and some of the classical mythology to the Gospel stories, we get in chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, the wedding feast at Cana. The wedding feast at Cana has to do with drinking the wedding wine. And the wedding wine uh, runs out. The love potion wears off and the wedding wine runs out. And of course that's the point that's the sticking place. Then what? Well, it's an enormous temptation to go back and have some more of the potion. Because we can all remember that. It's that wonderful, glassy-eyed, instincts wouldn't face, the whole thing. And it's such a relief from consciousness. But the gospel story says that there's this other thing called the miracle wine, which comes after the wedding wine runs out, assuming you don't go running off after the love potion again. So that Paolo and Francesca have abandoned the opportunity to drink of the miracle wine. 
in, in order to drink some more of the love potion. It's going in the wrong direction. Well, the gluttons in Canto Six are, are perhaps we can be instructed by them uh, because it's a less sympathetic uh, sin than Paolo and Francesca. Uh, it's worse, it's further down into hell, it's worse because there's less semblance of mutuality involved. And I think it is the violation of mutuality that is still at the heart of it. Uh, and that, and that, it's that that makes Canto 5 and Canto 6 uh, related to each other. Um, but anyway, let's start with the imagery. These souls now are lying supine in the mud and a cold rain and hailstones and snow is falling on them. Uh, and they're guarded, or they're hounded over by a three-headed dog, Cerberus, again another classical image that Dante has further demonized. And uh, this, th their state should be compared to the, to the uh, so-called lustful in Canto V. The lustful are, are moving completely in the air with and these creatures are completely in the mud if we were to compare them we might say at one level uh, those in Canto 5 have refused to incarnate to come down to the ground so as to make to, to, to make that incarnational connection uh, where, where love is a verb and the souls in in uh, the third circle, have have failed to in, have failed to bring the inspiration into the. They are carnal enough, they are uh, carnate enough, uh, but there's no inspiration in it. So one is all all earth and no air. One is all air and no earth, uh, but both violate the in, incarnational need for a combination of those two things. But that's a kind of a heady way to look at it. It's, it gets more interesting if we get a little closer to it. Uh, again, Dante um, takes the hardest case. Now, uh, gluttony uh, is only uh, could only merit hell if if what it is violating would have merited heaven. So that it's not just a question of overeating or something like that. It's a much more fundamental question. Probably the central uh, archetype for the gluttony in the spiritual sense would be the story in Genesis of Esau, who traded his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. That is to say, it's the spiritual birthright that is being bartered away. And um, if we took that as the archetype, we could say that Abandoning the birthright causes overconsumption. And then if we wanted to, we could take a look at the culture we live in and see if we couldn't analyze what's wrong. Abandoning the birthright, according to the Esau story, it goes hand in hand with overconsuming. Well, anyway, uh, Dante decides not to take the easy case, uh, but to take a harder one.
Um, but let's look at, uh, at gluttony in a couple of forms and then come to Dante's case because we, we want to take advantage of Dante's scenario here to stop and, and uh, investigate some of these things. Uh, two fairly mundane forms of this would be, one would be a kind of an addiction. Uh, but what is violated in the addiction is relationship. Uh, in addictive behavior, the most destructive aspect of ad addictive behavior is that relationships are subverted in order for the addict to get the fix. That the addict comes to exploit the relationships as a means to getting the fix or surviving in a world where he's totally consumed with getting the fix. So what is really at issue is, again, relationship. Now, the, the addiction can be anything. It can be addiction to uh, food. It can be addiction to heroin. It can be addiction to the McNeil Lear report. It doesn't have to be... <laughs> It doesn't have to be uh, any one of those. Anything can do. Anything that where the, where genuine relationship is being is being manipulated in order to get the fix. A little and slightly more subtle version of this might be fastidiousness. More subtle version of gluttony might be fastidiousness. In other words, uh, paying too much attention to something that doesn't deserve that much attention. Uh, in Dante's universe, Dante's universe is hierarchical. There, there are lower and higher orders of reality. And to, and to give a lower order of reality attention that's appropriate to a higher order of reality is to begin a perversion process which will end in hell if you don't watch it. So fastidiousness is another version, even though it seems to be the opposite sometimes of gluttony. So that... Uh, I'm, I'm told that the, that the great, uh, uh, that the major publishing enterprises in, in the book world today, there are three: uh, cookbooks, diet books, and exercise books. Uh, they might all be regarded as gluttony in Dante's sense of that term, fastidiousness with regard to something that doesn't deserve that much attention. Uh, even though it may deserve some attention. I'm reminded of a little story. I'll tell the story. Uh, this actually is a class here one night. Um, a monk who comes to class and some other people uh, came in, and before the class started, everybody was talking. It was an evening class, and some of the people were talking about this fabulous meal they just had, and they went in great detail. It really sounded luscious. You know, It was just this wonderful, uh, inviting meal and and so on and so forth. And uh, the monk was sitting there looking over the text. I think it was when we were doing the Gospel of John. He was looking over the text, and somebody, they, they're all friends, and so somebody said to him, uh, what did you have for dinner? Uh, kind, of, kind of playfully. And he looked up and blinked a couple of times, and he said, I can't remember. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> uh G.K. Chesterton said, uh, talking about living a simple life, he, Chesterton said, 
It's more a symptom of the simple life to eat caviar on impulse than to eat grape nuts on principle. <laughs> so the point is not to not to be abstemious, but the point is not to not to put more energy into something than it deserves. Well, all of that is a kind of general thing, but now we have to go to the harder case of Dante. Dante provides his example. His example is a man named Chaco. Chaco means pig or hog. But Chaco was, we learn somewhat from the Divine Comedy and more from uh, supplementary sources, Chaco was a witty, sophisticated, charming, raconteur, party-goer, dinner-party favorite among the... Uh, among the fashionable in Florence. Not a glutton in the sense of somebody that just sat and ate and ate and ate, but a charming party-goer. And Dante has him in the hell with the gluttons. So we might want to look at, again, what is the violation that the gluttons are guilty of? The gospel, the uh, book of Bible begins and ends with eating. In uh, Genesis, the story begins with the eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And in the last book of the Christian Bible, the Apocalypse, uh, Christ is the lamb to be eaten, the paschal lamb to be eaten. So eating is the beginning and end of the, of the, gospel, of the uh, Bible story. And then there is, what do we do in the meantime? I like that term, the meantime is the middle time and also the harder time. Uh, and what we do, turns out, is we eat. We eat together. Do this in memory of me in the meantime. So eating is a very... The, the communal meal is absolutely central uh, in the biblical order of things, to the work is to break bread together, to be together in community. Companion means with bread. Companion comes from the words with bread. We break bread together. We commune together. So that what Chiaco is doing is that he is, masquerade, he is he's masquerading as the life of the party while remaining fundamentally an isolate. Have you ever noticed how the life of the party can ruin the, the community of the party? I'm in no position to talk. I sit up here and talk all Saturday morning, see. And, and a community only happens when we go over there and eat, eat uh, cookies and drink coffee. So I'm in, I'm, I'm real, realize I'm treading on very sensitive ground here. You're not wearing the lampshade. <laughs> I'm not wearing the lampshade yet. Without communion, there's nothing let, left but consumption. And the consumption is all the more, is all the mo more compulsive to the degree that there is no communion. 
it's it's a it's gluttony in a much more profound sense than just overeating. Here's another. This is another one. I'm, I apologize to the people on the tape again for not being able to see this, but you, and it, it's kind of this shows a, a, a fellow sitting with a, a plate of spaghetti in his lap, watching on television the Last Supper. Um, it will, it, in the meantime, it will either be communion or consumption. And to, and to the degree that communion can be destroyed, we will all be reduced to consumption. And that's what Chaco represents. He represents the, the bon vivant who pretends to be involved in communion and in fact he is destroying it and uh, nothing's left but consumption. Giacco uh, uh, masquerades as the life of the party but when he gets finished there's no party. Uh, it, I think that's why John Dante has chosen Giacco that uh, it's a very subtle way of destroying communion and has very little to do with overeating. But he puts, he chooses Chaco for his glutton, I think, to indicate that it's really a violation of the impulse to have communion. I think this, this Samiramis is so important. Minos and Semiramis are very important. Minos says it's really autoerotic. That's what hell is all about. And Semiramis says it is applying a moral standard after the fact to justify what already is. That's what hell is. That is the, that is the key. Those are the two key symptoms of hell because it destroys forgiveness. I always think that the thing I want my children to know about is forgiveness. Everything else they can pick up. Well, Divine Comedy is like the Bible in that the more you get to know the text, the more bewildered and astounded you are by it uh, because of its sheer universality. Uh, an almost relentless insistence on taking a look at everything in human experience. Uh, and uh, this is nothing but sheer joy for those uh, who love this sort of thing. But if, but if you come to it uh, more earnestly seeking uh, specific answers, uh, you may not be quite as satisfied as it is, as you know, with the Bible. The text is, or I should say the margins of the text, are littered with the corpses of those brave souls who have tried to systematize it. Uh, it simply will not uh, lend itself to that sort of thing. And one, uh, in a couple of passages we're going to look at today, we'll see Dante at his very best in that respect, uh, presenting us the multifaceted nature of a particular sin. Uh, and one of the uh, things that he does, which he will do in today's text a couple of times, is that he pairs the sinners, 
so that we get to see the two almost opposing aspects of the same sin, as though evil itself were a bifurcated reality, that, the, that perhaps the nature of evil, at least at some level, the evils that Dante will be looking at today, requires a, a uh, polarity or schism or, uh, or contention between two uh, versions of the same sin which seem to be at odds with one another. Uh, and that this is part of the seduction of evil, that it uh, is fascinating, this little contest between the two versions of the same sin is fascinating enough to lure us into it until we get to the point where we, where we surrender the real drama of life and settle for the melodrama or the farce that the sin consists of. It's as though Dante is saying that, the, that sin or evil breeds in a, for example, we-they, win-lose kind of environment. Uh, that that is the kind of environment which produces the sinful tendencies, or at least uh, e exacerbates them. In that environment, the only legitimizing factor, often, is the invidious comparison between oneself and the antagonist. One begins to say things like, yes, but look at what they're doing. We can't, that, uh, to behave otherwise would be a nice luxury, but look, this is uh, a real problem. This is a real danger. Look at our adversary. Do you see what the communists are doing or the fascists are doing or the who, this and the that's and the others are doing? And so that one gets seduced into that kind of melodrama uh, and, and it becomes legitimized by pointing to the uh, to the to the to the real uh, dangers of the other, not realizing that one is taking on oneself dimensions of that same sinfulness. Uh, if you look closely at the headlines these days, you can see versions of that uh, just about everywhere. Well, uh, Canto Seven starts with the pagan god of wealth. Plutus, uh, uh, ejaculating a slogan, and uh, here's how it begins. We must become competitive again, so Plutus, with his grating voice, began. The gentle sage aware of everything said, reassuring, don't let your fear defeat you, and so on. As you can tell, I substituted a, one slogan for another. His slogan was, Pape Satan, Pape Satan Alepe, which means nothing. It is jargon. It is a slogan. 700 years before Madison Avenue refined the art, Plutus is the source of the art. It is a slogan designed to uh, sound like something that means something and in fact means nothing, uh, but it sounds enough like something that means something to keep the whole enterprise going. 
I substituted one that simply happened to be another current one that's all over the front pages. We must become competitive again. That's a Plutus uh, slogan, which is to say what, what the Plutus slogan does, nobody, people have tried, to, interpreters have tried to uh, uh, see if Dante's disguising something here, and most have given up and said the point he's trying to make is that it has no meaning. Uh, but it is clear from the, from the, uh, the nature of the language, Pape Satan, that what's happening here is that there is a perversion or perhaps an inversion of the real order of reality. That reality is being turned upside down, turned on its head by this slogan, which appears to be uh, a reliable guide. Uh, but having uttered it with such, uh, with such uh, force uh, and intimidated Dante by the forcefulness and, self, and, and self-assurance of the utterance, um, had Dante been alone, he might have been convinced by it. But Virgil barks back a sort of shut up to Plutus, the god of wealth. And then it says, As sails inflated by the wind collapse, entangled in a heap, when the mast cracks, so that ferocious beast fell to the ground. So it was all hot air. And all that was needed was for somebody to say so at the appropriate moment, and then they could go on. Dante looks down to see these sinners punished and says, Even as waves that break above Charybdis, each shattering the other as they meet, so must the spirits here dance their round dance. Rondelay. Uh, I apologize for this. I know we have some dancers in the room. <laughs> some round dancers, perhaps. I don't know. Anyway, uh, this is a, a parody of the round dance, not the round dance. And what they're doing, it's a kind of a combination of the myth of Sisyphus. You know, Sisyphus has to push the, push the rock up and it rolls back down on you, pushes it back up again. They are pushing rocks, big stones around with their chest in, in, in teams, and these teams then come crashing together at, uh, at the critical moment. And when they crash and then they fall back under the weight of the stones only to regroup and repeat the thing over and over again for all eternity... Uh, and when they crash together, one side says, Why do you hoard? And the other side says, Why do you squander? You see the melodrama of that? That it's all being worked out. And in terms of the overall sin, it is a violation of... It is a perversion of the virtue of economy. Economy means... The word means housekeeping. The economy is a housekeeping function. It's a very humble function. It means just keeping the house in order. It is not an end in itself. The sin, I think, for these sinners, and as Dante is looking at it, the sin is what happens when it becomes a mean, when it becomes an end in itself instead of a means. Instead of a humble janitorial function, it becomes the central undertaking of the life or of the culture. The uh, Spanish uh, poet Antonio Machado 
By the way, I think last week as I was editing the tape, I realized I, or the week before or whenever, I, I, I think I referred to him as a Latin American poet. He's a Spanish poet. Uh, wrote a little poem. It is good knowing that glasses are to drink from. The bad thing is not to know what thirst is for. I think what Dante is peering into in the fifth, uh, fourth circle of hell is what we might call homo economicus, a species in which the economic enterprise has become paramount and everything else is subordinate to it. So this is homo economicus that he's looking at. There is no cosmology that to which this enterprise is subordinate. It is its own, it is, it is its own uh, um, guide, its own function. It's become the central feature of the life. Trusting as a tenet of faith the market economy or the market forces is a capitulation to this state of affairs. It's an admission uh, that there is no overarching value system which could give some perspective on what it all means. And so we turn it over to the market place, which is a central... Now, I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want me just rant and rave about uh, market economies, uh, but a point needs to be made about the underlying uh, fallacy uh, that gives rise to some very miserable existences, that creates a situation in which life can become very miserable unless somebody can begin to see what's really happening. Homo economicus, with no other, no value that's, that it's subordinate to. It treats any larger cosmology as a private luxury that you can indulge in on the side. If you look down into the, into the fourth circle, what you see is life lived completely uh, in a mentality, in a, life lived with a mentality which is totally consumed with economics. Hoarding and wasting. But that's just a kind of extreme example, I think, of Dante saying... Now, Dante's not saying economics has no place. No, economics does have... Of course, it has housekeeping function. Very important. One ought to be responsible, and so on and so forth. Dante's too much a man of the world to be, to be uh, 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 you know, black and white about this. But this is... The problem here is that there is no overarching value system which it is subordinate to. So that it, it lends... So slogans are brought in. Uh, the market forces, let's become more competitive. The biggest one, uh, I think, in the Western Hemisphere is that this is called the free world. It's called the free world... I, by the way, I, I recognize that, that in many ways it is a, a freer world than some others. But what's called a free world is not, a, is not worlds of parliamentary democracies. What, what is called a free world is the world of the market economy. 
uh, if you go down the list of those that are included in the free world, it's market economies. They may be run by dictatorship, but they are market economies. That's called a free world. That is to say, free of, free to compete, free to engage in that, which is, which is not. It's not as though that's evil. The problem is that it simply has lost any sense of what it's what life is supposed to be about. Uh, and so the intermediate function of keeping the house in order has become the central function of life. Uh, the American poet Lewis Simpson said, the American economy can go through a day completely oblivious of poetry without the slightest jar. And he, you can substitute for the word poetry a lot of other things. I think it's a, one has to be highly suspect of, of Temenos when it gets to me reading my own poems. But anyway, <laughs> this, occurred to me, this occurred to me just this morning. Um, it's a poem that, from a couple of years ago. It's called The Little Bang Theory. One toes the cinders at the starting line. One does a little high-kick dance. One jokes about how he fell once, and each will soon be leaving it behind. A pistol full of blanks points at the sun as they cock their bodies and look straight ahead, anticipating the split-second sound for which a brotherhood is formed and forfeited. A puff of smoke and the knees and elbow boys bolt blocks before I even hear the crack. For they're closer and more attentive to the noise, and now they're leaping hurdles down the track. It's a version of the round dance. Uh, and it seems to justify existence. We must become more competitive again. What does that mean? I thought, they, I thought we were supposed to become a human family. That's a pagan slogan, and everybody is saluting it. It's Plutus talking, with no Virgil there to shout him down. But it justifies everything. In Moby Dick, the Pequod, you know, is the ship that goes out in search of uh, Moby Dick under, the, uh, under Ahab, the captain. And there's an interesting two sentences w describing the Pequod. A cannibal of a craft tricking herself forth in the chaste bones of her enemies. All around her unpaneled open bulwarks were garnished like one continuous jaw with the long, sharp teeth of the sperm whale. It is to say that, the, that this ship was all decorated up with reminders of the adversary so as to keep the, the focus and the justification from wandering. So Plutus is in charge of keeping some kind of some kind of delusional uh, incantation uh, in the minds and hearts of the of the uh, followers of this Homo Economicus operation.
uh, we're getting dangerously close to the really malicious sins, but here there is a vestigial hint of community. There are teams, two teams, the squanderers and the hoarders. Uh, they are not in community at all. There is a kind of alliance of convenience. They are combats. They are combatants or uh, comrades in arms. You see, uh, but it is a vestigial reminder of a community that once was. And Dante, Dante looks out on them. By the way, I should read you this little passage from Eliot's Courses on the Rock, from the Rock. When the stranger says, what is the meaning of the city? Do you huddle together because you love each other? What will you answer? We all dwell together to make money from each other? Or this is a community? So it is the violation, once again, of community. Uh, the larger community, even the planetary community, let's be more competitive, means what? Means let's beat the Germans and the Japanese. Doesn't it? Uh, what's going on here? Well, anyway, uh, Dante looks out and uh, he sees these souls in, in this part of hell and he says, are they all clerics? Are they all popes and cardinals and priests? And it's as though Virgil says, well, not quite all. Virgil says, they are all squint-eyed of mind. That's Mandelbaum's translation, myopic. They're all just totally... What's that mean? That means they have lost any vision of a larger meaning of life. Everything is being played out in terms of the bears and the bulls on Wall Street or in terms of the this and the that's, whatever it is lost any sense of a larger meaning for life. He says, no spending that they did was done with measure, which is, I think, a medieval way of saying there's no larger value system that gives, that, that provides the principle upon which this housekeeping function can, can be ordered. And then he speaks of the of the, the, all the clergymen and popes and cardinals whose avarice is an, is an excess, um, which is a timely one for us to consider. There's now a great brouhaha, you may know about this, in Italy, the uh, Vatican banking operation uh, is a billion dollars plus uh, in some real question and some really shady deals and uh, and so there's, there's uh, what there's what's there's what the humble Nazarene brought us to. So it isn't just a medieval problem. In the American version of that's a little hokier. It's TV evangelization uh, and promise and, and and telling your people you're going to die on a certain date unless you get enough money to build, <laughs> build your. You see, it's all it's all part of that same funny business. Dante, if he were to look over into that same realm would see the same percentages, probably.
Virgil says, line 58, ill-giving and ill-keeping have robbed both of the fair world and set them to this fracas. Now, that's very much like Wordsworth's sonnet, getting and spending we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. The irony is that this ill-giving and ill-keeping robs them of the world. And in, in Wordsworth's uh, <coughs> poem, getting in spending dispossesses us. We become aliens in the world in which we ought to be at home. It, is, it produces exactly the opposite of what one thinks it's going to produce. Well, uh, then Virgil mentions fortune, beginning line 61. Now you can see, my son, how brief's the sport of all those goods that are in fortune's care for which the tribe of men contend and brawl. For all the gold that is or ever was beneath the moon could never offer rest to even one of these exhausted spirits. We have proven that, I think. Um, over and over again, how much is enough? Well, just a little bit more than what is, is will maybe be enough. And so it goes. But Virgil now introduces this other um, element, fortune, the personification of an overarching order, which ought to have been attended to by these, these sinners and was not. Fortune is a, the personification of a divine uh, 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 presence in the, in the mix. Uh, the pagan world called her fortune or luck. The Christian, in the Christian world, she is providence. Uh, it's interesting to know what we do with this word fortune nowadays. You know, Christianity, when Christianity con conquered the pagans, it superimposed uh, on pagan shrines and pagan holidays uh, Christian temples or Christian churches and Christian uh, holidays that corresponded to it somewhat. Uh, there has been, more recently, a reversal of this trend, which is that previously uh, uh, Christian holidays are have are now being paganized again uh, Christmas being the most notorious <laughs> example Christmas is now a kind of economic Mardi Gras uh, more more than it is a, a, a religious holiday so that so that the the new religion is doing what new religions do it's taking the existing feast and and uh, holy sites and turning them slowly but surely uh, into another religious form. Well, one of the versions of this is what happens with language, so that we can call a, 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 a nuclear missile capable of ending the world the peacekeeper, or we can call, uh, we, we, when, for us, the word fortune means wealth, it means wealth. 
the Fortune 500. Fortune does not mean that. Fortune is the personification of fortune here, the wheel of fortune. Fortune means the, the change, the mysterious change that goes on in the material world that is in the nature of things. It is in the nature of things that that change goes on. And these sinners are ones who, who could not live in accord with that change, who tried either to speed it up or stop it, who could not accommodate themselves to the nature of that change. And Virgil says the only source of happiness in this regard is to accommodate to fortune, or if we could use the Christian term, to providence. So fortune is the cosmology that might give some order to this universe of economic activity, but it has not, uh, and this, but the sinners here have not availed themselves of it. A larger order, which we may not be privy to, but we violate at our peril. Perhaps ecology is a good example of this. Uh, ecology comes from the same, same word for econo economics. It simply means housekeeping. It's the study of the laws of the housekeep of the house. It's the study of the rules of the house uh, so that we'll know how to keep house better. See? Uh, every economics course, before you get your master's at Stanford or, or you know, wh where, before you get your MBA, you ought to, your BA ought to be, your, or, or, or Bachelor of Science ought to be in, in ecology. Should be no advanced degrees in economics until you have a, a undergraduate degree in ecology. They're in the same business, and that the, the, this has nothing to do with Dante. I don't know why I got into that, <laughs> except. That has a lot to do. With <laughs> well, it does in the sense that he's talking about a he's talking about a cosmos, and it, things have to be done in the context of the cosmos. I think Dante was a genius. In you, first of all, having Plutus. Uh, have a little slogan, and then to talk about this round dance, which is really a, a, a parody of the round dance. Uh, the image, though he doesn't refer to it specifically, the image that I get from this is uh, of slogans and jingles. And the use of slogans and jingles to get as many as possible uh, to dance the jig. <laughs> Meanwhile, what what the ancients used to call the music of the spheres. The symphonic uh, music is going on overhead, and everybody's doing this little jig based on these jingles, which is which is a, an enormous impoverishment of life. I mean, the, the 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 thing is not that it's evil, but that it is a tremendous. A waste of life to put all of one's life energy into that when this other thing is going on. Well, I wanted to play around with words a little bit to get a sense of the providential cosmos that's being ignored. Uh, what happens is the source of happiness. These two words have, have the same root. What happens is the source of happiness. If I live in a providential cosmos, 
what happens is happiness if I live in a providential cosmos. It may not be pleasant, but in the deepest sense, it is the source of happiness if I live in a providential cosmos. Success is what succeeds. What succeeds is the next thing to happen. This moment has just succeeded the moment before it. It is therefore technically a success. Success is simply what happens if I live in a providential cosmos. Fortune is what happens. Everything is fortunate if I live in a providential cosmos. But like Job, when he just when he started his his learning process, we won't have it be that way. For us, poverty is a social embarrassment. It is a plight that it would be chosen as it has been chosen uh, by most, well, maybe perhaps not most, but very many of the people that we base our, our, our uh, deepest understandings on is totally puzzling to us. That, that poverty would be chosen beyond a tender age in our society, chastity is psychologically suspect. You see, we the idea that that fortune could be something other than how we've defined it. That it could be this other thing. That what happened to Job could be fortunate. Now, Job is the one who under, finally came to understand that everything is fortunate. Now, he had to go through the dark night of the soul to understand that. But when he got there, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He essentially moved from a cause and effect cosmos where you better do it right to get what you want into a providential cosmos. And the pain that he had to experience to make that transition is, I think, symptomatic of what's involved, how, how, how wrenching that transition can be. But to live in a providential cosmos is not to be happy in the superficial sense, but in the deeper sense in that what happens is, in what happens, there is happiness for those who live in a providential cosmos. So that the appropriate attitude is Job's attitude, namely, gratitude. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, meanwhile, Plutus carries on his... uh, uh, Operation. We could go on about that because it is such a dominant in our culture right now, but I want to go on to what's really more important. Dante and Virgil come to the River Styx. Now, in Dante's version of it, the River Styx is a classical river in Hades, but Dante changes it slightly because he is dealing with a 
with a, a circular journey, a funnel down into the f funnel of hell. So for Dante, he is coming now to the to the threshold which separates what might be called the sins of weakness, um, lust, uh, greed, so on, and the sins of maliciousness or the sins of wickedness. And they're what separates them is the wall of the city of Dis. And around the city is a moat, and the moat is the river Styx. But it, in Dante, it's not really a river, it's a kind of a swamp. Uh, but they must cross the river of Styx to get... So it's the last... It's almost a intermediate place between the sins of weakness and the sins of wickedness, the swamp that they're coming to. And Dante looks in and he sees muddied people naked and their faces furious. And these are the wrathful. These struck each other with hands alone, excuse me, these struck each other not with hands alone, but with their heads and chest and with their feet and tore each other piecemeal with their teeth. All semblance of even uh, alliances of convenience have been dropped. It is now simply dog-eat-dog. Dog. Things are getting grimmer all the while in the journey into hell. These are the souls, Virgil says, these are the souls whom anger has defeated. And then we are told that there are other souls that you can't see. On the surface of the, the marsh of sticks are the angry, but there are other souls whom anger has defeated underneath the water uh, whose sighs make little bubbles come up. So we know they're there because of these little bubbles that rise to the surface. And they say, the, under the water, they say, we had been sullen in the sweet air that's gladdened by the sun. We bore the mist of sluggishness in us now we are bitter in the blackened mud. And this is their hymn. Dante calls it their hymn. Well, what he, again, he, he, uh, there's a pair of sinners here, both committing a version of the same sin. And this is, I think, enormously important, and enormously important for Dante uh, personally, and important for uh, the journey. Uh, within as well as the journey into hell. The wrathful are those who are addicted, I think you could say, are those who are addicted to anger. Which is to say that they are those who only know how to come alive when they're angry. There are people who are addicted to this, that, or the other emotional motif. Uh, some people can't come alive unless there's a little lust going on somewhere. Unless there's a little hint of some sexual possibility. Some people can't come alive unless there's a little desire operating. Uh, so they have these little tricks for getting desire going, you know. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's August, and they say, what do you want for Christmas? <laughs> or something. <laughs> Uh, because it, this is not vitality is not there unless they can get it going. Likewise, those who are addicted to anger, unless they can pound the table, you know, or somehow get the anger going, it just 
it seems it seems that there's lifelessness uh, and the fact and when they're in the pounding the table mode there is just as much lifelessness but for a moment they're oblivious to it because it seems so vital and so they become they I say we become addicted to anger and uh, get stuck in it the other ones underneath the surface are those who learned how bad anger is. They Maybe they learned from those on the surface. See, they said, oh, look at those poor creeps. They're just... So I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to repress my anger. I'm just going to sit on it and clench my teeth and make it look like a smile. And it turns rotten. It turns green and rotten inside. And the irony is that they're punished in the same place, in the same pit. They got stung by the same thing. They're both stuck there. They're both stuck in it. For the sullen, the sullen are those who have repressed their anger. And anger has dropped, as we would say, into the unconscious and has soured their whole life until anger has become not an emotion but a mood. And it has poisoned their very existence. 